Well, hi, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm in what one is supposed to describe, and in this case it's an accurate description, the lovely home of Laurie Taylor. Are we in Clerkenwell, Laurie? Well, we are, absolutely. I seem to be, as I get older, I seem to be moving further and further east in London. Uh When I first came to London many, many, many years ago, um, the only place I could afford to get anywhere was in the outer limits of South London. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who know London will know that this is really rather... Slightly sad area in a way because it doesn't have any tube trains, so therefore transport is pretty difficult. And there are many people in London who only think that the proper place for intellectuals is North London, and that and Zone One, Zone One indeed. (laughs) Crossing the river is a sort of Rubicon experience, you know, that you expect, as it were. I can remember going out with um, one one woman who said to me. Oh dear, she said, look, it's South London. Look, you only got to look at the faces of the people. You can see they're different. There's a certain criminal aspect to their faces. <laughs> and I can remember saying, but we're only halfway across Waterloo Bridge at the moment. <laughs> you know, it was even the prospect of South London, which was frightening too. But then gradually, you know, from South London, from all those places like Blackheath and Lewisham and Clapham and Balham, then gradually, as I got a little bit more money, I managed to creep over the bridge <laughs> and got a little sort of flat in Bloomsbury, but then uh, then started to shift east, because what happened in London, culturally, was that in a way there was a move to the east. When I first mm-hmm. came to London, mm-hmm. everybody was trying to live in Notting Hill. Right. Of course, we had Hugh Grant's film, you know, and we had, everybody thought this was the place to be, West London. But then gradually it shifted and mm-hmm. people began to talk about the regeneration of East London, and there was the Olympics, of course, in East London, and then there was the so-called high-tech aspect of East London, and there was... So East London became... And I'm gradually moving sort of further and further east, having started off the like Russell Square, then moved one. So I'm gradually... Moved, I don't know where I'll end up. You know, I might well end up in Essex. Somewhere, <laughs> you know. But uh, that's been the geographic... It's a sort of it's a familiar geographical pattern, I think, for people you know who, who arrive in London. But of course now there's no geographical pattern because nobody can possibly come to London and buy anywhere. Buy anywhere? At all. No, uh, we've got a housing stock shortage here, and there's a vast demographic shift into London for those not familiar with it at all, because basically the rest of the country's economy is still on the downturn, and this isn't, at least not in the same way. So, for example, the Afro-Caribbean population has moved, hasn't it, a lot from places like Birmingham uh, oh, yes. and, and other parts of Britain to London in the last well, five London, years. London, it, which is one, it is familiar, it's a familiar geographical statement, but London has appropriated so many of the resources of this country. I mean, so many of the cultural resources. I meet you, I've just come back from Tate Modern, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the very many museums and art galleries uh, in the centre of London. Just down the road from me is the Barbican, you know, where I can go and see symphony. When I go to the rest of the country, you know, you really do almost feel that you have somehow gone to another country. And of course, there are people like the writer Saskia Sassen and people like Richard Sennett who say that it's probably wrong now in many respects commercially, economically, and perhaps even culturally, to talk about different countries. What one should really talk about are different capital cities, rather like, you know, when we used to talk about Venetian city-states, the Mm. time when Venice and places like that 
Venice and Genoa, and uh, these these were more distinctive than countries. But now, if you have somewhere like London and Shanghai and New York and perhaps Paris and Hong Kong, you know, we are talking here about major cities. And in a way, there's a new international elite that really only moves between those cities. You know, businessmen who know nothing of Doncaster, who know little of Avignon, you know, uh, they move between these cities. And indeed, at the very extreme, these very rich people who move around the world, this, like, as capital moves around the world, so the owners of the capital move around the world, and when they arrive in these city centres, they probably don't even know, Saskia Sassen observed, which country they're in. Because, in a way, there is something identical. They're likely to be in the same hotel chain. The barbers they go to may well be the same. The restaurants they go to, although advertised as Turkish and Armenian and Spanish, and are likely to be run by the same group of concessionaries. So at any moment, I've often wanted to go into one of these anaesthetized central areas of the capital cities of the world and grab hold of a person and say, which country are you in? It's rather like you know, holiday <laughs> makers who used to go on package holidays I can remember someone coming back and overhearing a conversation on the plane and one girl said to the other, where did you go on holiday? And she said, Rimini. She said, oh, she said, I've always wanted to go there. She said, which country is it in? And she said, I don't really know. She said, it's just Rimini. She wasn't aware she'd been to it. So holidaymakers and capitalists uh, perhaps move really between places. In the late 60s, there was a British comedy film, I think, called This is Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium. <laughs> it's a very, very nice title, isn't it? Of not knowing where you were. But the way, yes, in the way in which place has been foreshortened, I mean, not, and obviously place has been foreshortened by the internet. I mean, we're now talking. People who are listening to this at the moment may well be thousands and thousands of miles away from entirely different cultural backgrounds and geographical locations than ourselves who are conducting this conversation. And yet, as it were, are drawn into something which would have been difficult to be drawn into 10, 15 absolutely, years ago. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things you do now, Laurie, is, have done for a long time, is operate or work as a very important media intellectual media presence. And specifically, you host, for those who don't know it, a radio program on the BBC on Radio 4, which is, in a sense, the talk channel, I think one could say, as opposed to Radio Bloke, Radio 5, which is also the talk channel, but is blokey, shall we say. And your program started out as a radio program that you either heard or you didn't. But now, we were just chatting before we started recording about the fact that you have a man who claims to listen to endless <laughs> podcasts of it while crossing the Gobi Desert. It was a very funny beginning to this program, and I can, I can now reveal it, because, I mean, I, 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 in between my academic career, you know, when I used to um, teach sociology, professor of sociology at the University of York, I was a little bit of radio on the side. Sometimes it was local radio where I'd pop on and trying to argue we didn't need to send quite so many people to prison or whatever, produce a few liberal sentiments for <laughs> the citizens of York. And then shuffle off. And then shuffle <laughs> off, yes. Used to be known as sounding off my mouth at the drop of a check, but <laughs> the check was pretty invisible from Radio York. But then I used to come down to London and do variety, little tiny bits of radio here and there. And then one day, one of the producers said, 
I've got a very, very good idea, an excellent idea for mm -hmm. a radio program. Could we put you down as presenter? In this, what we're going to do is get academics arguing with each other. So we'll have it'll be a half-hour program. And suppose, for example, we have one academic who believes that Darwin's theory of evolution is absolutely right, down to the very last detail, and another academic who thinks it's about time that we stop being quite so in hoc to Darwin's theory of evolution, because there are so many exceptions to this theory that can be found that we shouldn't really venerate him in such a way. I said, sounds fine, yes, I'd really enjoy that, put me down. Anyway, the program was accepted, and a producer was allocated to it, and we had to make a pilot program. So the producer came to me and said, what do I have to do? I said, you just find two academics <laughs> who disagree fundamentally about something. It could be about evolution, it could be about Marxism, it could be about structuralism, it could be about art, it could be anything at all. All we want to do is two academics, they argue with each other, and I'm mediator. He came back after about five weeks and said, I can't find any academics who are prepared to argue with each other. I said, there must be some around, surely. <laughs> he said, no, they all say, well, we do disagree, but we wouldn't want to do it in public. So I, he said, what are we going to do? We have to make the pilot program next week. I said, well, look at the original thing. On the original thing, we had that evolution, one person for and one person against. Go to the woman who proposed the program, ask her where to give you the name and address of these academics, and we'll use them at least for the pilot program. So he went away and came back and said, I've spoken to her, and she said she made them up. <laughs> so I said, look, what can we do about this? The program's been commissioned. He said... The BBC have got so many managers, they've got so many bureaucrats, they don't really know what on earth's going on. So you can do what you like. Why don't we do what we like? I said, fine, let's make a programme about social science in which we talk about the latest research. He said, Wonderful. fine, we've done the 15 years. We haven't been caught yet. And of course, <laughs> the people who originally commissioned it are no doubt dead, passed on, gone to television or whatever else happens to people in radio. This is the impracticality of a dialectic in the post-Cold War period. <laughs> Trying to find people who hate one another and no one hates one another. It's in quite though, a specified manner. Well, academics, <laughs> you know, academics love arguing in the privacy of senior common rooms, but they don't want to expose their arguments on air. When we first began doing this program, we used to get people saying, well, I'm so sorry, I can't possibly come on your program. Your program's only 30 minutes long. You've told me that my contribution will only last 12 minutes. I can't possibly describe my complex, sophisticated, methodologically challenging research in a period as only as long as 12 minutes. We don't get that now, because in this country now, in order to be a successful academic, mm. you not only have to do research, but you have to show that your research has made an impact. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not likely to be very celebrated or become a professor or rise up in the academic world. So how do you make an impact? You get on the radio. So now we are bombarded by people who are saying, I'd simply love to come on your program and talk about my research into gay marriage in Sunderland. Because they know that they have an impact. Because we have 1.2 million people listening, all they've got to write on their little form is, my research has been broadcast to 1.2 million people. Goodness knows how many of those 1.2 million are dozing, but nevertheless, the figure is there. Well, I wondered if I could ask you about a couple of programmes that have been on in the last year or two, and they're commemorative programmes for people who have passed away. They're very important programmes to me as a listener. One was about Stan Cohen, and the other was about Stuart Hall people that you worked with and knew very, very well. 
And uh, this also ties into your background as a radical or critical criminologist going back to the late 60s and 70s and their crucial roles in that. People probably know about Stanley Cohen and the National Deviancy Conference. I'm not sure they know about Stuart Hall and his relationship to criminology. I wondered if you, and this is probably quite a personal thing to ask when we met 14 seconds ago, if you could reflect on what it was like to do those programs about two of the really great men of British sociology and culture. Well, Stan Cohen, it's still quite difficult for me to talk about Stan Cohen in some objective academic way because he was not only someone I wrote books with, I yeah. mean, I did, I wrote several books with him, which meant a great deal to me, but he was a very close personal friend and he was one of those wonderfully anarchically minded people who didn't take academic life too seriously. Uh, he regarded, as an anarchist, you know, anarchists are ten, inclined to question all institutions to which they belong, whether it's the, whatever it is, the, the church or the military or universities. And Stan Cohen was at heart an anarchist. I don't mean to say with a large A that he wanted to go around burning and setting fire and pillaging and overthrowing democracy, that he was one of those wonderful anarchists, rather like Ivan Illich, who distrusted institutions. Mm -hmm. He distrusted mm -hmm. anything where there was a bureaucracy and where there were sets of managers and rules. So he was a wonderful, wonderful person to be with. I mean, I suppose, I don't know how far, I mean, the, 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 I suppose to me, I, I came out of my background was an orthodox psychologist. I, mm. I, always wanted, I wanted to be a, I didn't know what I wanted to do at university at all. I couldn't get into university when I was young. I kept failing to get into university. I said, I wanted to do English and I couldn't get into university. So eventually I thought, well, in order to get off with women, I, I'll do a psychology degree because I saw myself strutting around at parties and women would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a psychologist. And then they'd say, good heavens, I had this dream last night and I could help them with it. I mean, in fact, and possibly I, participate in their next dream. <laughs> possibly, yes, indeed. Or <laughs> um, casting myself into their next dream. But then, um, I mean, all the psychology I did was during the time when behaviorism, this was an ism which was concerned with the belief that you could understand all human behavior if you very closely observed the way in which rats behaved in tea mazes and one could then generalize from rat behavior to human behavior. And so I was entirely disenchanted with that particular approach. Mm. And then I turned to sociology quite late in life. And Stan was, in a way, the first working sociologist I, I ever met. And our relationship blossomed after we wrote a book together called Psychological Survival, which was based upon research we did in the maximum security wing of Durham Prison, where we suddenly found here, we were asked to teach a sociology class. I can remember the governor saying to us, there's one thing when you do your sociology class with these prisoners, you must remember there's one thing you mustn't speak about. And we said, what's that? And they said... Uh, their own lives and we said it's a little bit difficult to teach sociology to people without mentioning their own lives but we went in and here were some very very notorious prisoners who were in prison for 20 25 30 years life there were the Crays, who people might know the gangland bosses of london the richardsons who were also gangland from southern london the, the members of the great train robbery which what people said at the time made Britain quite famous in criminal animals and criminal books. <laughs> so all these people were there and we went in at first we were just teaching them that then somebody came in and there was a psychology piece of research being done on how these men cope with 30 years 
ridiculous psychology questionnaire they were going to give them every five years. Question number 26 on this, I remember, was, do you tend to find that you're the life and soul of the party? Oh, great. Not exactly appropriate to long-term prisoners. So we said, look, prisoners objected to this. We asked them to tell us what they did, how they faced up to, how they feared they might deteriorate physically, bodily, how they, if you went sent to prison for 25 years, what did you do? One person, Charlie Richardson, said to us, you do it five at a time, Laurie, five at a time. Another person, John McPicker, said to us, you break all contact with the outside. You break with your wife, you break with your girlfriend, you break with your partner, because that avoids the ang agony, the anxiety associated with what you know is going to arrive one day, the letter saying, by the way, I found somebody else, a dear John letter. They could look around them and see people who were deteriorating before their eyes, physically becoming a bit absurd because they'd spent 20 of their years wandering the gangways of this particular wing. So that was what our first book was about. Mm. And from there, we developed ideas because then, all of a sudden, America became significant. We didn't really quite know what we were doing. We knew we weren't doing orthodox criminology. You know, the, that psychology questionnaire was more orthodox criminology. But then we suddenly encountered the whole group of Americans who called themselves sociologists of deviance. People like Howard Becker, people like David Matzer, people like Albert Cohen, Coward and Olin. Here were a whole range of people who were what they described themselves as sociologists of deviance. So they didn't start off by examining prisoners in jail. They said, what do we mean by deviance? Let's look at why people who commit acts which we call deviant, how those acts come to be labelled as deviant. Mm, mm. In other words, they were looking at the labellers, the people who did the name-calling, who said, you're a deviant, you're a junkie, you're a no-good, you're a bum. We became interested in that. And we became interested in subcultures, how people, in particular, I mean, Stan's famous work, Folk Devils and Moral Panic, was based on the mods and rockers, two subcultural groups. And what he did was to try to understand the nature of these subs, to give some meaning to these groups, mm. rather than saying, these are mindless yobbos, they are drunken no-goods. What do they talk about? How do they see themselves? What are their objectives? What is their view on the world? So whether it was Dick Hebdige writing about skinheads, or about mods, or whether it was Stan Cohen writing about mods and rockers, all of a sudden we became interested in these deviant forms, these deviant types. We became interested, if you like, in cultural aspects of crime and delinquency. And this is where we begin to bring in this man, Stuart Hall. Mm -hmm. Because one of the other elements, I've been talking about the American influence, but then there's an English influence. And the English influence comes in through Richard Hoggart. Now, Richard Hoggart was really a student of English, uh, in a way, somewhat a traditional student of English. But he became particularly interested, in a way, picking up from writers in English like Leavis, who'd been interested in popular culture. This is F.R. Leavis, whose wife, Queenie Leavis, wrote a famous book about Absolutely. popular literature. And Hoggart, sorry to interrupt, just for yeah. some people, some background. So working class uh, kid does adult education teaching and then goes to Leicester and then Absolutely. Yeah. And wants to say... Look, what we call culture, we're going back now to the late 50s and 60s, mm. the word culture in this country used to be attached absolutely to classical music, to high culture. If someone was cultured, it meant they went to the opera, 
It meant they went to French cinema. It meant they read classical literature. That was what being cultured meant. But when Richard Hoggart and others came along, they said, just a minute, well, you mentioned mm. already the interest in popular culture in Victorian times, but suddenly there was the idea that perhaps we should take other cultures mm. a bit more mm. seriously. Mm -hmm. Now, Richard Hoggart, who came from a working-class area of northern England, Hunsley, from now the suburb of Leeds in the northeast of the country, wrote a book, Uses of Literacy, which was in many ways an account of his childhood and a reverential, loving, sympathetic, warm portrayal of working-class culture. And the idea of working-class culture, you have to remember at that time, these were people who lived in working-class areas. Well, you know, we might think there were some nice people, but they just, you know, football and comics. and well, Why should we need to take that seriously? One only hoped that they'd soon get some education, get to university, and then they begin to learn about proper culture. Because what Hoggart went back and said, look, the characteristics that these people show are valuable characteristics. Mm. And at a time when we were knocking down, you know, the new visions of Britain were coming into being. Architects were running riot over some of our major cities, sweeping away the terraces, sweeping away what they call slum property, replacing it in many cases with sort of anaesthetized uh, dead-handed architecture, large tower blocks. But this was Hoggart saying, pay attention to what is going on here. And in order to bring in other people who could write about other aspects of this culture, pay proper attention to it, to what was being read, to the comics, to the pubs, to the meaning, whatever, he set up the Institute of Contemporary Cultural Studies, the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at the University of Birmingham. And people went there it was, I think, originally an aspect of the Department of English, but then gradually became a cult centre in its own right and became an important place for people to go who wanted to study what we can just call popular culture, if you like. Um, and then that was Stuart Hall came, because although Richard Hoggart did extremely well there, the time came for him to move on, and he moved on very successfully into other areas, working at UNESCO, becoming a vice-chancellor of the university, and so on. But at that time... When he looked around, it, it was an astonishing thing, because the person he brought in to replace him, and here was you know, a North Country working-class boy who'd made it through to grammar school, made it through to university, written a book which had had an enormous influence around the world on the value of working-class culture. He was replaced by a young man of Marxist sentiments who came from Jamaica, uh, and, and had arrived in Beach Oxford, certainly distinguished himself at Oxford, that he was uh, an immigrant from Jamaica, as I say, of Marxist sentiments, who arrived and took Richard Hoggett's place. It was an extraordinary mm. move. And what happened then was that the place, which had been something of a hothouse before, but it developed quite dramatically, because think, we're thinking about the times, the late 60s, the 70s, when there was a great new emphasis upon Marx and the importance of Marx, we're talking about the cultural revolution of the late 60s. And, and continental the, Marxism, so-called. Continental so, Marxism. A more aesthetic form, not necessarily Stalinist or Trotskyite or any of very, the particular very varieties important. that were common. We were talking about the ways in which people like Althusser or Marcuse, these were various, or Lukács, these were Marxists, who hadn't really been spoken about before, but who were Marxists who sat outside what could be described as the Stalinist 
deterioration of what had had some promise, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century to become a socialist state, but had now become, depending upon your political affiliation, a degenerate worker state or an example of state capitalism. They mm. were the two terms used by the left who wanted to distance themselves from the oppressive nature of the contemporary Stalinist regime in the Soviet Union. So, as you say, people were picking up upon people like Foucault, on Derrida, uh, on Marcuse, on Althusser, on a whole variety mm. of French continental, uh, German as well. Um, uh, we have to think about uh, uh, Habermas, the influence of others here. So this was a, a, a this was an extraordinary. Uh, vital, vibrant place. You've got to remember feminism is going on as well. You know, there have been people here are sort of talking about Simone de Beauvoir and they're talking about Germaine Greer as well. And when I talked to people there, it would seem to me to be a marvel that Stuart Hall managed to keep all this together because you had Dick Hebdige who was studying, you know, who was studying mods, uh, would be going down the clubs, taking pills and joining in the mod antics. There'll be the feminists protesting about the anti-gender politics of the modern subcultures and so on. And when you go back and talk to people about it now, they say the way in which Stuart Hall kept this venture alive, absented himself from discussions where he knew, you know, that he might, his presence might be seen as patriarchal in any way, initiated new seminars on new aspects of colonialism on questions of identity, because questions of identity were very important. If you were born in the Caribbean and you came and lived in England and you spent 20 years here, what were you culturally? What sort of hybrid were you? When did you become West Indian, Caribbean, and when were you English? What Norman Tebbit used to call the cricket, the cricket test. test. You <laughs> knew who you were by deciding whether you supported England, England. or the West Indies. This is Norman Tebbit, who was a not dearly departed conservative politician, powerful in the late 80s, early 90s. And this is part of the nasty party element of the conservatives in Britain, which is resolutely anti-cosmopolitan and anti-immigrant. So Where the Tebbit test was... If you really think that you're English, then you will support the English cricket team. So when Pakistan or India or the West Indies, of course he wasn't talking about Australia or New Zealand, come to play here, then you should, if you came from one of those countries, transfer your loyalty. But this was only really being applied, of course, to people who were not white, spoke other languages and had cultures that were quite distinct from the white settler colonies. So Stuart Hall, but Stuart Hall of course, had always was associated not just with academic studies. I mean, mm. Stuart Hall was very much someone who wanted to make an input to political debates. <clears throat> and he was there with a paper, the magazine called The Universities and uh, New Left Review, later just The New Left Review, which was a magazine of ideas which Stuart edited for a time and where the left in various forms um, could write essays, serious essays, long essays, but not from within the academy. Mm. Know, this was something which was addressed to the intellectual left wherever they were. <laughs> and, there were and there was a network of little clubs, wasn't there? Oh, all yes, across there. Britain. 
new uh, left reading clubs. Right. In London, they had a little clubs. coffee bar. You know, I mean, I think yeah. because the left ran it, it soon ran out of money and became <laughs> economically non-viable. I mean, the general rule is if the left comes seeking money for a new venture, don't give it to them because it will never succeed. Um, you know, the, that. Uh, but 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 so Stuart Hall was there. Mm. And Stuart, people like Stuart Hall and Stan Cohen, these were the eminence grieves. You know, these mm. were in a way the cultural heroes in this country for a long time. I mean, Stan Cohen moved away and turned his attention to other areas. He you know, worked for the United Nations um, on uh, important research, went on in Israel into torture, which had been used by the Israeli uh, army. Um, Stuart Hall moved very much into the propagation and the promotion <coughs> of black art uh, in this country. Um, I mean, they went their various ways. Neither of them were locked into academic life, although mm. Stuart ended his academic career as professor of sociology at the Open University. I mean, now that, that there is little that corresponds to that. Cultural studies now, if you talk to Stuart, if you talk to Stuart Hall when he was alive about it, and I did in one interview quite close to his death, and... He regretted the way in which cultural studies had become turned in many respects into mere analysis of television programs or radio programs or films without any attempt to locate that interpretation within a broader theoretical framework. That sounds like a lot of words, but, you know, for example, you might just get someone looking at a soap opera Coronation Street, you know, one of the most popular, enduring soap operas, and saying, well, what is, uh, what, an analysis of recent plots in Coronation Street, or the role of women in Coronation Street. I mean, it might be a short study in which someone looks at a series of television programs, whether it's, you know, an extended American series or whatever, mm. and they produce a few insights about the series, that they don't connect this particular cultural development to any wider society view. So someone might talk about the number of apocalyptic films which are appearing now about planets and the apes or whatever, mm -hmm. the number of films which are coming along about the threats to the end of the world, and people might say, well, here's an interesting syndrome and analyse these, but they might not choose to locate these in any discussion about the crisis in capitalism and the way in which these rush of films about the possible ending of the world seem to follow very hot in the wake of an economic crisis which threatened to overthrow capitalism. So what Stuart Hall and others would be saying, don't turn cultural studies into mere essays or dissertations which are not much more than film criticisms or television criticisms. Make certain that if you're doing this job, if you're doing cultural studies, make certain that you're talking about culture in a way which locates it within people's lives and in the way they determine those lives, in the way that they actually live as part of their daily lives, how it informs their existence. So, in many ways, the fact that there are cultural studies now in probably every university in this country and probably in every institute, college of higher education is a matter for muted celebration. Success equals failure. Laurie, can I, can I connect this to something you said earlier, namely the fact that people are now lining up 
to sell their latest book or journal article to you to get on your radio program, which is part of the governmentalization and commodification of academia and the metrics that are required, all this stuff in Britain about impact that you mentioned. How do you sniff them out as opposed to the Stan Cohen's or the Stuart Hall's? Well, we get some duds. <laughs> we get some duds. Uh, there's also a tendency with this new impact to produce flashier titles. So, I mean, people used to talk about some structural determinants of passenger locomotion in, a, in, a, in an area of London. Now they talk about the number 99 bus cultural variation in <laughs> travelling. You, know, you know, they try and throw it at you a bit. They recognise they've got to sell it. So we get a few, we get a few duds. I, I like to... It, uh, and you're, so, so, some, is, some, is, some seems like routine academic scholarship, but there are some funny ones that come along. We had one recently, of extremely you know, young researcher who had one. Sometimes they start from a single little aperçu, a single little observation. These studies, and what she noticed, she was going along and studying people who were moving to a new housing estate um, in South Wales. And these, this, these new houses had underfloor central heating. And so she talked to the people who were moving into and Their original project was going to be about people moving to new houses. But she noticed that they were all asking for mantelpieces. When they were asked, to, what would you like in this little room? Could we put a few shelves over here for you, the builder said, or what else? They said, could we have a mantelpiece? And they said, I'm sorry, you misunderstand. We've got underfloor central heating. We don't want a mantelpiece. You don't have a fire. He said, well, we'd still like a mantelpiece. But a mantelpiece and no fire? He said, yes, because the mantelpiece was where they put their photographs. It was where they put their mementos. It was where they said, this is where I went on holiday, where they had this. It was an announcement of their identity. It was the mm. place where they mm. said who mm. they were. Mm. And so now, from this little thing, she then developed a little thesis about how people announced their presence within their own homes, you know, what they did to particular rooms, what rooms mm, announced mm. who they were, or what rooms announced what sort of people they were to people who were visiting. So some rooms in your house tend to be rooms which are there to say to your visitors, this is how we are, and other rooms, more like the bedroom, but rooms where you say, this is how we are, when we are not being seen by This is where I park my head. That's right, exactly where I park my head. Laurie, getting back to something you said earlier again, if I could, this issue of identity comes up, I think, in terms of the importance of how people regard their lives rather than the importance of those people in social terms. And it seems to me that's one of the themes of your work, as it is of Cohen's, as it is of Hall's. But also some of the people you've worked with and talked about are not just ordinary people. Uh, Reggie and Ronnie Cray, John McVicker, are stars. They're celebrities of their own kind. And in fact, you worked with McVicker, didn't you? Uh, so these are people who are in the clink, but they're actually on the front cover of glossy magazines as well. well Could you talk a little bit about that, about celebrity I yeah. identity? Well, I never knew about I never knew about Ronnie. I never knew Ronnie Cray very well because although Cray was in the prison where I was teaching. He didn't come to my classes because, according to John McVicker, who was in the class, uh, he was so stupid that his stupidity would have been shown up and therefore his <laughs> prestige would have been diminished. So he didn't appear. 
but McVicker did. I mean, the story of me with McVicker was that when we went in there, I mean, the story was that we went in there to teach, and I remember saying, next week I shall be talking about uh, Max Weber and his uh, theories of rationality, and so we'll see you then. Uh, two days later, John McVicker, in what was described as the most daring jail escape ever in the history of this country, managed to get over the wall of the maximum security prison in Durham and escape and go on the run. I mean, I always used to say no one had ever tried so hard to get away from one of my <laughs> lectures as John McVicker. But while he was on the run and we were writing up little bits about our prison research, he would write to me and say, couldn't, couldn't help but notice when I was reading one of your articles in the magazine New Society the other day, he said, you said this, that's quite wrong, Laurie. Meanwhile, there are hundreds of police hunting around for where he is, you know, and I've got these letters from him. When he came out of jail, I said, yes, I, it'd be nice to meet him again, you know, because it was... He, meanwhile, he'd, been, he'd got a degree in sociology, and he came out of jail, and I thought it'd be a very good idea if we wrote a book together. And what I wanted to write a book together was all to do with this culture, because mm. people had written about criminals, about, about, about gangsters, about robbers, about confidence men, about drug dealers, if you like, about professional criminals... But the only professional criminals they'd ever written about, nearly always the case, had been professional criminals who'd been caught. Now, these are obviously, I hardly need to explain it, a subset of professional criminals. And you might say the least interesting subset because they've got caught. What about working professional criminals who still at large, who make a living out of it, who do pretty well out of it? So I said to John, look, you know these people. You know the underworld. Will you take me to meet them? Will you show me to them? Mm. I can remember how naive I was. I had my little tape recorder. And he said, I'm going to t take you to see a confidence man, first of all. Someone who makes his money out of passing dud checks. Someone who makes his money out of taking travellers. Made a living out of it for years and years and years. So this would have prepared you for BBC accounting. <laughs> yes, that's well. Anyway. But George, was, and I remember going to see George and thinking, right, here I am. Tape recorder on. This is going to be a great book. Laurie Taylor, interviewer, sociologist. Right, George, I'd say. First of all, I'd say, how did you get started on this career? And he said to me, that's, a, that's questions, Laurie. I said, it's a question, yeah, George, question. He said, I don't like questions, Laurie. <laughs> so I said, how, how do you mean? He said, no, I don't do questions. Don't do questions. Anybody said to me, questions, questions. No comment, nothing, nothing, not saying nothing. Don't know anything about it. No questions. Write down the sheet, Laurie. No questions. Never do, no questions. He associated questions entirely with the police, mm. with investigation. And when I got into that culture, I realized what you never did was to ask a question. Mm. This was a non-interrogative culture. Mm. You never said to anybody, John never said to anybody meeting one of these clubs, what are you doing recently? Because they just give them an old-fashioned look. What do you mean, what am I doing? Mm. I'm not fucking telling you what I'm mm. doing recently. Mm. What I'm doing recently is my business, John. Keep out of it. I had to realise that. So this was a new culture. I mean, eventually, John got completely fed up with me and at the very end of it, dissociated himself from the book. And he was really, in a way, it's difficult to understand at the time because it was difficult for me at the time. We fell out. I'm back friends again now. But at the time, I felt he'd somehow, that he'd run out on me. But what it was really that he couldn't, this culture in which he lived for so many years of his life in its own peculiar codes of morality, its own codes of speech, its own 
codes of assessing what was good, what was wrong. So, in a way, working morality was something he was not prepared to surrender to, you know, jumped-up sociologists like me. And eventually I understood that, and the book came out, you know, without his imprimatur, which meant that it probably wasn't as well received as it would have been with it. I had to live with that for a few years, but I did understand in a way. Mm. There was a one man, Arthur Dooley, who was a Liverpool communist sculptor. And in the late 60s, I always remember this line, it fits so well with what Richard Hoggart was doing, fits so well with the story I'm telling you about John McVicker. He went on the radio at a time when Liverpool, the centre of Liverpool, was being transformed by some architect with no sensitivity to the place at all, who was ripping buildings out of the centre of Liverpool, terraced housing, whatever was there, creating new motorways that ran through the middle of the city. Horror show, horror show. He came on a radio programme together with Arthur Dooley, this sort of communist sculptor, to talk about the new Liverpool that was emerging. The architect, in glowing terms, described the wonderful new centre of Liverpool. And the interviewer then turned to Arthur Dooley and said, well, this sounds wonderful, you know. Uh, you can't have any objections to this, because I understand that the architect, as he was saying before, had even sent out questionnaires to the people who lived in these terrace houses, and they said they had no objection to being moved elsewhere. They said to Arthur Dooley, I mean, you can't have any objection. You seem to be objecting to this and trying to stop the developers. What's going on? These people don't mind moving out. And Arthur Dooley said, there's no one as easy to rob of their culture as them as don't know that they've got one. And I thought that was such a strong, brave, powerful statement. It often stuck with me later on. It's easy to rob people of their culture. But it's easy to take it away people who don't realise they've got one. But the dominant culture is so strong. It announces, this is what culture is. This is what you should be watching. These are the films. This is the music. This is this. You know, there are new cultural templates being laid down. And although there may be a great deal of cultural diversity, in many cases, a cultural diversity manufactured by people with things to sell. I mean, when people say to me, isn't it marvellous that gay culture, you know, the, the way in which the gay culture has now become part of the fabric of our society, aren't we liberal and tolerated? I always say, you've got to take a moment to reflect that gay culture was greatly helped along in its way by the gay pound by the fact that advertisers recognise we now have a wonderful new niche market. So be careful when you talk about the homosexual culture or the gay culture, because that gay culture may well be a commercial gay culture in part, and there may be other people who are gay and want to have a culture who don't want to subscribe to that particular muscle-bound, self-serving, narcissistic, Soho-based gay culture. Mm. And... Laurie, I'm very conscious of time, uh, not so much my time, but your time. But I wanted to ask you one last question, if I could, which is a little bit left field, as we say in the United States, but everybody nowadays knows the metaphor, even if they don't actually know what its reference is originally in baseball. Namely, you've mentioned the new left uh, with reference to Stuart Hall in particular. You've mentioned various Marxist tendencies and so on. And I know that your program occasionally gets letters, because you often are generous enough to read them out, where you're accused and your interviewees are accused of being leftists, including Stuart Hall. That spectrum, left-right, is routinely problematised nowadays as no longer being relevant. 
I think it is relevant still. I'd love to know where you would put yourself on that spectrum, thinking about the young man who was teaching prisoners at Durham with Stan Cohen through to the not quite as young man who is now ideologizing, you know, errant listeners of the BBC across the Gobi Desert. Well, I do. I mean, as you know, we are, we are, we are sitting in quite an elegant flat um, in, in East London as, as, I'm, as I'm talking to you. And uh, it, um, it's difficult to be, tell you about, it's not long ago since people used to talk about champagne socialists, <laughs> or they tend to live in Hampstead now. I think they're probably the champagne socialists now will probably live in East London. I suppose what I enjoy, what I would, I'd almost, the trouble is that the left and tends to be conflated with Marxism, and then you have to decide what sort of Marxist you are. I mean, economically, Economically, I would still describe myself as a Marxist because it seems to me that Marx's analysis of capitalism and the crises, the recurrent crises of capitalism, is still, you know, a highly potent analysis of what is going on, uh, and I would still subscribe to that. Um, but I suppose that when I come to talking about other elements, uh, I'm happier really to almost to talk about. Not so much being a Marxist, but more to embrace a word like radical, mm -hmm. um, because I like the idea of the constant subversion of anything within society which has become settled or taken for granted or assumed to be everlasting. So I'm going back in a way to the Stan Cohen roots. I mean, rather like Stan Cohen used to celebrate people like Illich mm. and say that mm. as soon as something, a necessary function in society, whether it's education or medicine or health, whatever, as soon as it becomes institutionalized, as soon as it turns into schools and universities, as soon as it turns into doctors and hospitals, there's a danger, in fact, that you're moving away from what it should be all about. And um, that, as Gothman used to point out, that institutions are run for the benefit of the people who control the institutions rather than for the benefit of the inmates who find themselves. And that applies to prisons and boarding schools and hospitals um, uh, equally well. So I'd like to think that I'm sort of radical insofar as I always enjoy the research which unsettles, which wobbles, which makes precarious something that previously one might have taken for granted. It can be a little tiny thing. For example, the same person who did the thing about mantelpieces did, produced a little piece of research the other day on corridors. Now, what could possibly be <laughs> subversive about corridors? How on earth can that be subversive? But what she showed was that corridors were places where truth was told. And I said, how do you mean truth? She said, corridors are places where you cancel emails. You go into the corridor and you say to your fellow employee, by the way, take no bloody notice of that email. In other words, the formalistic mm. nature of the mm. office is contradicted by the nicely informalistic area of corridors. But notice, she points out structurally, that open plan offices are attempts all the time to get away from possible back areas where people can subvert the formalistic element of the workplace. It used to be we'd go down to the boiler room 
or we'd find a little place here or there, what Gottman calls these little back regions, these places where we could go and we could say, the managers don't know what they're talking about. Mm. But now with modern methods of surveillance, where management can know exactly what you're doing on your computer at any moment in time, indeed can know when you're absent from your computer, people need to construct these little subversive areas to find mm. places where they can be something other than being chained to the desk. So from this little idea of noticing that in corridors people simply say, forget that email by the way, it wasn't meant for you anyway and I'm just, just doing it for the sake of it. She generalised out into something which begins to subvert the idea of the workplace, mm. which says, in the, and of course, then you move to someone like Richard Sennett, and Richard Sennett writes books in which he shows that modern management techniques where such things as teamwork are extolled are the ways in which capitalism manages to secure a degree of discipline within the workplace, despite apparently preventing presenting a calm for you'd like to be a member of a team. Oh, oh yes, that can I be a member of the team? But you forget when you're in the team that some people have rather more power in that team than you do. And if you prove not to be a team player, in other words, you don't go along with all the managerial edicts which you're being asked to go along with, you're branded a non-team player. And I'm afraid we have no place for you within an area where we are so devoted to teamwork. <laughs> How this works, Senate's characterization of the hardships of the modern workplace, which presents itself with this wonderful, pleasing, benevolence. We now don't have such people as personnel officers. We now have human resources, which is why I always love the cartoon, which shows a slave ship where you're down in the galley, where there are 150 slaves, naked slaves, pulling at the oars. And at the end of it, there is a man with a whip lifting up a phone, speaking to the phone and saying, human resources? Laurie Taylor, thank you so much. This has been so evocative. And it's also lovely for me to meet you for the first time, having seen you on telly when I was a teenager, even. But uh, having been such a fan of your radio program, uh, I really thank you for coming along to join us. And I hope that in a few months, in a few years, whatever it might be, you'll come back to the pod and we can talk some more about the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to someone who recognises so many references and allusions. <laughs>